0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. It's actually my, my birthday today. A lot of times people ask when you, when you tell them that, they say, well, is it your Hebrew birthday or your Jewish birthday or your secular birthday? And it's a very sort of well-intentioned question. What, what people are trying to figure out is, you know, obviously we have a, a lunar calendar, um, which, which deserves an asterisk because even our lunar calendar is part solar. So you should know that. But, um, but it's predominantly lunar, but it's, it's hooked up to the, to the sun as well. And then we have, of course, the solar calendar, which sometimes gets referred to as the secular birthday. So here's the misconception. God also made the sun. (laughs) So the idea of referring to your solar birthday as your secular birthday doesn't make a lot of sense. God made everything. God made the sun and God made the moon. By the way, this is my solar birthday. So this is all in defense of the the holiness of the solar birthday as well. And they say you have an extra power for giving blessings on your birthday. So so with that in mind, I, I just... I bless you all, and as Rip Shalma would say, bless me back, right? <laughs> that really every day, every day, every day, every day, every day, you should have your needs met. Whatever you need, you should you should be provided it so that you can just maximize all of your strength to serve God. Right? And and to be the realest version of yourself that you can be. Um, I know Reb Shlomo. When when I was around him, I, I really always felt that the highest compliment I'd ever hear him give someone was that 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 person was for real. Right? If he said that you were for real, then then he, that was it. That was that was that was that was top notch. So, so Hashem should bless us that we should all be for real. So it says that Sarah laughed, and then she denies that she laughed, and then God says, "No, no, no, you laughed." So, <laughs> what's going on there? So, you see, laughter in this context means disbelief. So Reb Leibler asks a question which is that how could it be that our holy mother Sarah, that like the whole religion is built on her, how could it be that she didn't believe in God? doesn't make any sense. By the way, you should know something really interesting. When God tells Avram that he's going to have a baby, he also laughs, but he's not reprimanded. And the the little note there in in the stone chumich says, because his laughter was a rejoicing laughter, right? God is able to discern to a hair's breadth, like where we're really at, right? So Abraham rejoiced, and that was an expression of his laughter. But laughter can also be an expression of disbelief. So Reb Labela Eger says, how is it possible that Sarah, who was a total believer, didn't believe? Now listen to this explanation. It's a life-changing explanation. You see, she thought that she's going to do something to mess up this blessing. Yes, God is blessing her, and whatever God says is 100,000% true, but she is going to prove herself unworthy through her actions, and therefore is not going to be able to harness and access this blessing from God. So in other words, Rabbi Eger explains Sarah's laughter that it's not that she didn't believe in God, it's that she didn't believe in herself. And God says to her, you did laugh, meaning to say, Sarah, I believe in you. So if I believe in you, you also have to believe in you because believing in yourself is part of believing in me since I believe in you. Yeah, thank you. That's- so Rav Frimer brings, he says, shamati, I heard. So he doesn't give a source beyond that. But without getting too detailed, in terms of the, the bris milah, there are actually three stages to it. And everybody knows that when you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. And so Rav Fermer says that the, when he did these three separate acts, that he created three angels, and these were the three angels that came and visited him. I, I just want to run with that thought for a moment. So it says in the Talmud that whatever direction, positive or negative, that a person wants to go in, God assists them in going in that direction. So now listen to this. God doesn't want to bother Avraham Avinu because, remember, he's 99 years old, and he's just performed this circumcision on himself. Okay, this is like a very intense thing. So he doesn't want Avraham Avinu busying himself attending to guests. But Avraham really wants to do the mitzvah of Hachnasus Orchim, of hospitality to guests. He really wants it. So what does Hashem do? Hashem makes this incredibly hot day, so hot that no human traveler would be outside to to ensure that Avraham will be able to heal. But we have another Talmudic, principle, which is that in the way that you want to go, that's the way God directs you. And so what, what Abraham ends up doing is creating the guests, these three angels, so that he can do this mitzvah. So he's given the assistance to move in the direction that he wants to move. It's, it's amazing. Do you think God just made it hot? God didn't just make it hot. Rashi says that God took out the inside of the sun and made the inside of the sun shine. Took it out from its sheath. And this is another one of those verses that there are tons of Torah on. Basically, what it means is that God took the inside, the panemius, the supernatural aspect which dwells within creation and made it extant, made it manifest, right? And now listen to this that when Abraham had his circumcision and he cut away that foreskin, what does that foreskin stand for? The physicality of this world. And what was happening? Just like God took the inside of the sun and brought it outside the sun, took the supernatural and revealed the supernatural, God took Avraham's essence, his panemius, his exalted godly soul, and made it the outside of Avraham as well. So like what was going on with the son was going on with Avraham. And now Avraham gets to do this mitzvah of welcoming guests, but now he's like an angel welcoming other angels, right? So so God said, I don't want you to bother with on a bodily level, so don't do it. Avraham is like, I'm creating these angels because I want to do it. So God says, okay, you can do it, but you're going to be doing it as an angel with other angels. (laughs) So everyone wins, right? Everyone wins. And I want to talk about something in this week's Parsha. And it, it kind of drills down to this idea. And... I just, let me just preface it by, by saying the following, that I've tasted what I'm talking about, but I don't want to misrepresent myself or or my, you know, my level and, and give you the impression that what, what I'm telling you about is where I'm at on an ongoing basis, because it's not. I think that what I'm about to address is it's... If, if, you, if you know it, you know how deep it is. But um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very special thing if you can get to that place at all. And then staying at that place, wow. If you can stay at that place, I mean, you're beyond me, that's for sure. Um, but I think it's something for all of us to, to really strive for. So what I'm talking about is being in the moment. So you say, okay, being in the moment. And and I'm hearing it bouncing off your heads and your hearts as I'm saying the words. <laughs> but now we're going to try to really get into it in a deeper way. I saw Rabbi Shlomo Katz said something so beautiful. He captured so much in just a few sentences. He says that Parshas Lech Lecha begins with the first Jew being told to leave his past behind. And he says in Parshas Vayera, in this next parsha following Lech Lecha, it ends... With, with the first Jew being told to leave his, his future behind. He goes on to say, if you leave your past behind, that's Lech Lecha, and you leave your future behind, that's the Akeda, then what do you have? All you have is the present. So that's what, what God is instilling within Abraham, and then by virtue of Abraham in all of us, for all time, this ability to access the present. So we're going to go further into this idea because like the the depths of life are there. Can you, you know, there's a story. I'm not so crazy about this story, but there was a period of time when, when everyone was telling this story and it's, I don't even know if it's true or not, by the way. But it's told, I think, about one of the Rothschilds or certainly about someone who was exorbitantly wealthy. And he said about himself that all of his needs will be met because of his tremendous wealth till his last day. And I could see how someone would understand that if if you have billions of dollars, like you can't really imagine unless you go to Las Vegas and wager everything that you have on one roll of the dice, which clearly he wasn't doing. I mean, there's no way to understand how you don't have your, this month's rent to pay, or you don't have enough to buy a sandwich or something like that. Right? So so you could, you could easily fall into this way of thinking. And the way the story goes is that he accidentally locked himself from the inside into a a vault that he had, and that he died of starvation, and that he wrote in his own blood, this is how the story goes, on a piece of paper that, that he was wrong, that he was wrong. So anyway, I'm hearing that story ninth hand. So if if any of the details of that are right, I'm already ahead of the game. (laughs) But what's the point? The point is someone can absolutely have everything and yet really life is going on moment by moment. This happens a lot in football where there's an open receiver and somehow even though he's free, he drops the ball. And why did he drop the ball? Because there's some wiring in the brain that gets crossed where someone will already start running with the ball before they've caught it. And announcers will say that all the time. He he started running with the ball before he caught it. In other words, you're already a step ahead, but you haven't fulfilled the basic premise yet. So the idea is Yes, a person's bank account can be such where, on paper, they have everything they need, financially at least, till their last breath. But they're running with the football before they've caught it. You know why? Because before I get to the fact that I have lunch, I have to get to lunch. (laughs) And you know something? Each moment can be wider than the Grand Canyon. So how do I get over the moment in order to get to what I already have? Well, I guess I don't already have what I already have if I have to get through the moment. So I heard from Rev Shlomo that tzaddikim, they can have a plate of food right in front of them. Can you imagine you're sitting at the dinner table? There is a plate, not just an empty plate, a plate full of food in front of you. And they pray, please, God, feed me. Because who's to say you're going to get the fork from the plate to your mouth? There was a big Rebbe, I forgot his name, but Rebbe Shlomo said that in August, in the summertime, he would travel with a fur coat. And they would say to him, wait, Karen, what are you taking a fur coat for? And he'd say, because it's hot right now, that means it's going to be hot in a moment. You see, now we're starting to get to these exalted depths of what Reb Shlomo would say all the time. What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? And this idea of what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? know? Starts to free you from the shackles, the imprisonment of false knowledge. What's the false knowledge? Thinking you know what's going to happen a moment from now. You know, we were discussing some of these things on Shabbos. And I give a little talk before, before we start davening. And I said, I'm sure everybody thinks that they know what's going to happen for the rest of the day. You know, we're going to start davening. We'll do the Torah reading. We'll have Kiddush. But a few weeks ago, we were davening outside. And an escaped convict with a gun ran onto the block. The police shut down the block. There was a helicopter circling so close over the backyard that we were in that we couldn't hear each other speak. The police came in and said, everyone has to go indoors, and we were under lockdown. The head of the house came up to me and said, should I get my gun? And I said, yes, you should get your gun there were two Israeli soldiers there. He said, listen, if, if, if he comes into the house, everyone lie on your stomach and put your hands behind your head and we'll take care of this situation. And I remember thinking, I've never been so alarmed and reassured within the same sentence. So if I had said to you with like great confidence, yeah, I'll tell you what's going to happen today. We're going to daven, we'll hear the Torah, we'll have kiddush. Meanwhile, we're all in the house under a police lockdown with like sniffing dogs going up and down the street held by policemen. Can you imagine? So, how do you get to that place where being liberated from this false knowledge that you know what's about to happen next? You know, it's the deepest hell to quote unquote know. Do you think that the tree of knowledge that we're still in the ultimate exile from eating from was called the tree of knowledge by coincidence? See, we're not against knowledge. We, we're the knowledge people. We're the address for knowledge. We love knowledge. So why is it that all of the world gets put into exile? from eating from the tree of knowledge. You think that should be the ultimate redemption, right? But there was another tree there that we were supposed to eat from first. It was called the tree of life. That's what we want, the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge. Once you have the foundation of life, then you can incorporate knowledge and that knowledge has wings and it doesn't give you false expectations that you know what's happening next. The tree of knowledge brought death into the world. And, you know, it's so true in terms of human relationships. People think they know each other so well. I know what you're going to say next. Don't even finish your thought. I already know. I already know. I already know. I already know. That's the death of a relationship. Right? All right. So now I want to go deeper. So, if you say to yourself, okay, so I know that I don't know. Have I arrived now? If I know that I don't know, have I arrived now? And the answer is no. The answer is no. And let me explain to you why. And it's one of my favorite, favorite stories. So, I heard it from Reb Shlomo. Kutsk, the Katskar Hasidim, they were legendary even in their own time. Like they would make folk songs, a fire burns in Kutsk, Meaning people understood something phenomenal was going on there. One of the people who who wasn't a Hasid, you know, who was kind of an anti-Hasid, he was sent to investigate. Now the custom is that in in the presence of a Talmud Chacham, a great Torah scholar, you're supposed to stand up. You're not standing up for the person himself. You're standing up for all the Torah that he's learned, and for that person who has learned it, but but more for the Torah. It says, in fact, that people are foolish. When they walk around with a Torah scroll, you kiss the Torah scroll, but when a tamad chacham walks around, no one kisses him. <laughs> people should kiss the tamad chacham. That's what it says in the Gemara, by the way. So on some level it's for the person, but really it's for the Torah that the person's left. Anyway, so he comes to Kutsk and no one stands for him because Kutsk wasn't into flattery at all. They were very brusque with each other because any flattery has a little taste of a lie in it. Right? I'm going to be nice to you for whatever you can do for me. So. For that reason, they they really refrain from, you know, greetings and 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 all all the niceties that we sort of like expect from normal society. They sort of like abhorred them. Just to give you an idea, I'll tell you just a phenomenal story that I heard recently about the Kutzker Rebbe. One of his Hasidim, who was a businessman, came to the Kutzker Rebbe and said you know, Rebbe, I've just made a fortune in business, right? And the the Kutzke Rebbe grabbed him and he said, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. So someone asked me not too long ago, like a a religious guy, not just a religious guy, a Hasidic guy, he said to me, tell me a story. So I told him that story. He said, I don't know what that story means. (laughs) I said, well, obviously, the Kutzke thought differently about money than the person who walked into the room. And then he got mad at me. He said, I don't want a story that needs an explanation. (laughs) So I I told him another story and he was happy. (laughs) The Kutzke was once at a a wedding and they were davening mincha before the wedding. And he stomped his foot on the ground and he said, we're not going to daven here. We're going to daven in the other room. And he made such a point of it that everyone went and they, they said, okay, you know, you feel so strongly. So they went into the other room and they in, and someone came up to him and said, why afterwards? He said, why did you make such a production about m- moving rooms? He said, because it says that there's no wedding without a fight. And I wanted to make sure that I fulfilled the obligation that we should have the fight. <laughs> and that way everything can continue to go smoothly. <laughs> so... I told this story to him after the money story. And he said, ah, that's a good story because he appreciated that couple's fight. <laughs> Since that I understand. So he was happy. Anyway, no one stood for this Talmud Chacham, this great Torah scholar. Well, I don't know how great a Torah scholar he was, but he was a Torah scholar. No one stood for him in Kutsk. He said that he noticed that they stood only for two people. One was the Rebbe, and one was someone so poor that he had two bags on his feet for shoes and a leaf on his head for a yarmulke. And he was unlearned, and him they stood for. And this man was so kind of like confused by the covet, the honor that they were Showing him, he said, I, I understand that they, they stand for the Rebbe. I understand that. But that, that, that they stand for this person? Why? So they explained to him, you know why we stand for him? Now remember, Kutsk is all about the truth. They said, do you know why we stand for him? Because he's nothing, and he's not arrogant about it. In other words, He has achieved this state that in Torah we call bittal. It's like nullification. It means that basically you're just existing within the infinity of God. (laughs) And you're just, you are not a contradiction. Your independence is not, okay, there's God, that's one power. And there's me, I'm also a power. Bittal is getting rid of this illusion that you're a power other than God. If you can achieve bittal, this idea of holy nothingness, right? Holy nothingness and not low self-esteem. This is the furthest thing away from low self-esteem. This is not, oh, I I don't get anything right. We're not talking about that. This is like a quantum level higher than that. This is the idea that I have no existence independent of God. He is nothing, and he's not arrogant about it. So, we're getting there. We're making progress. We haven't gotten to the point yet. What does it mean to really be in the moment? But we're on the subject still. So, there's a joke and I'm sure you've all heard it, classic, classic Jewish joke, but it's on the subject. And it's approaching this idea that he's nothing and he's not arrogant about it. It's approaching it from a different angle. So there's a, you know, very wealthy temple, right? And you've got the the president of the, the temple and the and the, and the chazan, it's, and it's before Yom Kippur, and the president is saying, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And the chazan joins him and says, I'm also nothing, I'm also nothing. And the janitor comes up to them and says, I'm also nothing. And the president turns to the chazan and says, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> a famous joke. It's a famous joke. But when you hear that and you see the Kutzker story through the lens of that joke, now we're making a little bit more progress. The idea that you can be nothing and not be arrogant about it. If I get to this place where I say, I know that I don't know. Am I in the moment? And the answer is no. Because you've now turned it into a possession. I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. Now you've turned it into a possession that you've grabbed hold of. I'm going to give you another example. I heard Rabbi David Aaron say something. Which I thought was really awesome. He talked about spiritual materialism. You see there There are people who are very spiritual, but then they make it into this materialistic thing their spiritualism so so like one example that comes to mind, although I'm not talking about anyone in particular I'm just giving this as an example in fact, I don't know anyone who says this okay in in defense of all the people who it, it sounds like I'm going to be slamming i'm 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 really not doing this by design, but I'm just giving it as an example you know someone who says Oh, I've been to Uman, right? Like Uman, to go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah is like very high and holy. But, and like I said, I don't know anyone who does this, but I'm giving it as an example where you can use an act of spirituality and turn it into this materialistic thing. I've been to Uman. Look at me. In other words, one uses their spiritual attainments as a way of glorifying their own ego. See, the crazy thing is, this is why life and the moment and Torah and God is like handling like a live electrical wire. You have to be so careful and and so focused and so present because someone can actually achieve humility And then they say, look at me, I'm humble. And now you've ruined it. You've turned a spiritual attainment into a material possession. You see, when you understand, when you're at the opening of the tent, in our daily lives, what that means is that God can do absolutely anything at any moment so much of life we're just pulling the past into the present we go through life with our backs to the future and we're just pulling the past into the present the past into the present with all these imaginary obstacles and emotional traumas that we've experienced we're just pulling the past into the present and we're interpreting the present as having all these obstacles that are in our minds and are not in reality. And we say to ourselves, I can't do this and I can't do that because this is blocking me and that's blocking me, and it's all in our minds. Because anyone who really enters this rarefied space, and like I say, I've done it a few times in my life. I wish I lived there, I wish I lived in the present, but I know enough to say, That when you enter the present, it's the most liberating place in existence. Because you understand there is nothing stopping you from absolutely anything. And that God can absolutely do absolutely anything. So, why write sat if it means sitting? You know, one of the popular things going around in pop culture right now, I don't know if anyone's watched Ted Lasso, but it's sort of popularized this idea. So there's a player who makes a a, a terrible mistake, right, just on the soccer field. And Ted Lasso is the coach. and, And the advice that he gives him is be like a goldfish. And the person's mystified. What does that mean? He says, a goldfish only has a memory that lasts 15 seconds long. (laughs) So one level, when it comes to certain traumas that can hold us back, our performance, we want to be like a goldfish. But in other ways, we don't want to be like a goldfish at all. We, We want to remember things for sure. We have to remember things. The Ramban says something amazing. He answers a question, which a lot of people ask. Where are the biblical-sized miracles today? First of all, there are tremendous miracles all over the place. But where's the splitting of the sea? Where's these type of miracles today? The Ramban says something at the end of Parsha's bow, something almost shocking. He says, "You, you know what? God already did them. He's got to do them for you. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing slap in the face, but like the best kind of slap in the face because I was being so arrogant and I didn't really even know how arrogant I and, and how entitled I was being with such a question. God's got to prove himself all over for me. God already did it. So in that way, we don't want to be like a goldfish, Right? Because we have to remember, because we're still living in the world where God can do that in any moment, and we know that he can do it at any moment because he's already done it, and he doesn't have to do it again right this second to prove to me that he can do it at any moment. So I'm living in a world right now where God can do it at any moment, but the only way that I know that God can do it at any moment is because I remember that God has done it. In other words, sometimes living in the present requires me to live in the past. Because I understand that this is a tool that's relevant right now, but I only know if I remember. I hope that I'm communicating. So so in other words, rem- it's got to be sitting and sat at the same time, because in order for me to really be in the moment I also have to remember all of the great things that God has done that he can do any second right now and are part of the set dressing of the moment. So it's got to be sitting in set. And there's no contradiction. So how do you enter the present? And the way Avraham did it, is through his bris mila. Really interesting. Okay? So, I'm going to read you something from Gomorrah Nadarim. It's on page 32B1 in the Art Scroll Talmud, if you want to look it up. And Rav Frimer draws a very, very interesting parallel to, to get to this page in the Gomorrah. What he says is that, look at the way Avraham negotiates with God in terms of saving Sodom and Gomorrah. What it boils down to is, he says, if there are 10 people in the city, will you spare this city? Okay, so that's the end of this amazing, mind-blowing negotiation that Avraham does with God right? Like, you can't even imagine, like, like, an, we don't have an example of this. Moshe does it a little bit, but not on this, on the level that Avraham does it, where Avraham actually argues God down or negotiates God down from 50 people in the city all the way down to 10 people coming back to him again and again. It's really amazing, like, how Avram could have the presence of mind to do such a thing. It's by the way, it's the first place that you see actual prayer in the Torah. Can you imagine? That that's that's really exciting. And this is, it's interesting. It's the fourth parsha of the entire Torah, like Yudke Vavke, right? This is the first time that we see active prayer. In the entire Torah. So it comes down to 10 people in the city, like a minion, right? And they don't have a minion of righteous people. And so the city is going to get destroyed. So we see this idea of 10 being really, really important. I'm going to just read to you. Okay. This is from Kehelis, but it's Nadarim 32b. Rav Ami Bar Abba said, what is the meaning of that which is written? And this is one of my favorite little sections in all of Kehelis. There was a small city, and its inhabitants were few. A mighty king came upon it and surrounded it, and he built great siege works over it. And there was found in the city a poor wise man, and he saved the city with his cleverness. Yet no one remembers that poor man. Right? I always wondered, like, what that, what, what that meant. Like, you know, you're, you're rooting for the city. They're going to be able to survive the attack, and then they survive the attack, and this poor man, like, you know, who is kind of a nobody in the city, like, saves the whole city, and then the end of the story is, yet no one remembered that poor man. Like, I always scratched my head, like, what, what, what's the meaning of that? Okay, so, so the the Gamora is now going to break down that muscle from King Solomon. And, and tell us what it means. A small city. This is the body of a person. And its inhabitants were few. This refers to the limbs of a person that make up the population of a body. Now, I'm just gonna leave the Gomorrah for a second and fill in a very fascinating detail that Rav Frimmer adds. He says, if there are 10 people in the city Can the city be saved? And what you're going to find is that this city that we're talking about, that King Solomon is talking about, is the human body. This city is you. This city is me. And who are the ten righteous people that need to be present in order for the city to be saved? You ready for this? These are your ten crucial limbs now, remember, this is being said right after Abraham gets his bris milah, okay? They're your two ears, that's two. Your two eyes, that's four. Your mouth, that's five. It's five above, that's the upper level. It's your two hands. It's your two feet. And it's the male organ. Okay? Remember, a minion is ten men. These are the ten residents of the city who have to be righteous in order for the city to be saved. Isn't that fascinating? And then Ralph Firmer goes further. He says that these ten limbs correlate with the Ten Commandments. So, so I'm going to continue on now with the Gomorrah's explanation of this passage. A small city, this is the body of a person, and its inhabitants were few. This refers to the limbs of a person that make up the population of the body. A mighty king came upon it and surrounded it. This refers to the evil inclination, the Yitzhahara, that attempts to ensnare the person in sin. And he built great siege works over it. These are the sins that a person commits. And there was to be found in the city a poor wise man. This refers to a person's good inclination who directs him to follow the correct path. And he saved the city with his cleverness. This refers to repentance and good deeds, which can be the salvation of even one who has become enmeshed in sin. Now, you ready for the explanation for who's the poor man and why no, one for, why, what, why, why no one remembered him? An amazing insight here. Yet no one remembered that poor man This refers to the fact that at the time when one is seized in the grip of the evil inclination, no one remembers the good inclination, which urges him not to sin. Like when a person is like overwhelmed with like desire to do like maybe not so much the right thing, right? At that point, the voice, the positive voice, like kind of disappears no one no one remembers that wise man interesting interesting so so the idea is how does one sit at the opening of the tent by mastering your physicality if a person can master their physicality you see we're being pulled in every single direction by our desires, and we think that our desires are like taking us to that ultimate, ultimate place. And often, our desires really are very healthy and fantastic. You know, nothing, nothing against desire. Desire is really the, the the engine that that drives a person's life. So, desire is great, and it can be absolutely the thing that connects you to God, the absolute most. But more often than not, it's a distraction. And if a person can get to the place where they master their physicality, where it's the soul that's behind the driving wheel, right? Like, like your body is the car, and the question is, who's behind the wheel? If your soul can be behind the wheel, or the example that they give is a horse and its rider, right? The horse is the body. The horse goes in the direction that the rider points it. If the rider is the soul, then a person has a chance to sit at the opening of the tent because the person's consciousness is dictated by their knowledge of God and not by the physical world. That's what it is. A person's experiencing of the moment is authored by the soul's connection to God and not by whatever physical desire is pulling them back down into the material world. And that's the opening of the tent. See, it doesn't say he's sitting in the tent and it doesn't say that he's sitting outside the tent. He's sitting at the opening of the tent that's so deep That means that Abraham Avinu is straddling physicality and spirituality, but his physicality is only fueling his spirituality. His consciousness is only connected to the beyond. And his physicality is a support system allowing him to connect with his soul to God. If a person can get to that place, then a person can sit at the opening of the tent and they can disappear while being here. You see, this is the greatness of Shabbos. This is the greatness of Shabbos. Because on Shabbos, all of our meals are prepared beforehand. We're not running to the supermarket. We're not answering the phone. We're not running to business meetings. All we have is the moment. God, that's why Shabbos is called a gift. That's why Shabbos is so high and so holy. Because once a week, God allows us to institutionalize living in the moment. Do you know what the Neshama Sarah is? This extra divine, this, this extra soul that we're given. So, so many people misunderstand what it means. They think that what it means is, is that somehow you have one soul and now you have two souls. An extra soul, how else am I supposed to learn it? So now I have two souls. So I'm even holier. I used to only have one soul. Now I have two souls. That's not what it means. Rashi explains it so beautifully. You know what it means that you're given an extra soul? It means that God expands your soul so that you can incorporate physicality in a spiritual way. Because in a lot of ways, Shabbos is the most physical day of the of the whole week you have three meals and not just three meals like three like good meals like there's a special mitzvah to be close to your to your spouse right it's a very physical day but your soul receives this expansiveness so that you can experience all the physicality as spiritual delight so how can a person live without Shabbos? And then you know their levels to Shabbos. So I heard from Rip Shlomo in the name of Rab Aaron of Karlin. He says, "I know where I can get soup for Shabbos, and I know where I can get challah for Shabbos, but where can I get Shabbos for Shabbos?" Right, this is a very special gift to have Shabbos on Shabbos. So you really need simcha, because the thing that the thing that allows you get to get to this place is really joy. So, so however you can access joy, you know, singing, dancing, good food, wine. Like there, there are different ways of doing it. But that gets you to this place. And then, and then a person gets to live in truth. So, so Hashem should just bless us that we should be able to really increasingly live in the moment. Not the past, not the future. And not to know that I don't know where I've already taken possession of it and now I've turned it into something material. But really, that we can be that katzkar Hasid, with two bags on his feet for shoes and a leaf on his head for a yarmulke, to really experience Bittal and to not be arrogant about it, just to exist amidst the oneness of God that everything is possible and that the next moment can bring the greatest things. So just one final blessing that you should be in the moment, because when you're in the moment, you have absolutely everything you could ever want. Because if you're thinking about what you don't have, by definition, you're not in the moment. So when you enter the moment, You're absolutely the richest person in the entire world. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.